but also forced the Soviet mercenary fleet to return to Europe without firing a shot. Thus, America was united again. But soon afterward, there were rumblings of a new threat on the country's southern borders. The military commander in charge of security of New Orleans International Airport was Hugo Saint-Germain, a former officer of the Texas Republican Army, the Saint, served as governor, protector, confessor, and all-around fix-it man for the parishes surrounding the city they still called the Big Easy. Huey was also a friend of General Dave Jones, the commander of the United American Army, whose forces had two months before finally destroyed the hated Circle Army and its Soviet backers in a series of climactic battles that stretched from the Mississippi River to Washington, D.C., the saint was the only person at the New Orleans airport who knew that Jones's right-hand man, Major Hawk Hunter, the famous wingman himself, was flying in. He was not surprised when he learned that Hunter had saved a 727 airliner from bushwhacking F-4s on his flight. Now Hunter sat before him in Huey's executive airport offices, diving into a big bowl of gumbo. Who were they, Hawk? Huey asked, digging into his own bowl of gumbo. Organized air pirates or just freelance troublemakers? Hunter wiped his mouth with a large cloth napkin and took a swig of his beer. Hard to say, he answered, his mouth still half full. There was something strange about them. You don't see many pirate gangs flying something as sophisticated as phantoms. Yet these days, who knows? He took another mouthful of the stew and added, Also, there were actually four of them. Four? Huey asked. Really? Hunter nodded. One of them stayed way out of the fight, twenty-five miles away. I'm sure he was off the airliner's radar screen. After I took care of the first three, I lit out after him, but he was gone in a shot. A good flyer, too. He went down to the hard deck real quick, treetop level. Then, by the time I picked him up on my long-range APG radar, he was climbing at a 45-degree clip heading south. I was low on gas and figured I'd best keep that airliner in front of me, just in case. Well, we sure appreciate the help, Huey said. We're lucky you came along when you did. Any idea who was riding in that 727? Hunter shook his head between swigs of beer. He hadn't thought about it before. He had just assumed the airliner was on a routine civilian hop. It was our goddamn football squad, Huey said, his voice a mixture of anxiety and relief. They were coming back from a tryout at Football City. Christ, if they had gone down, this city would have been throwing funerals for a month. Another wipe of his mouth, and Hunter asked, What were they doing flying without an escort? Huey shook his head. Beats me. We sponsored the team's flight up there and back, and I personally gave the pilot enough cash to buy protection round trip. Hunter shrugged. He probably lost it all in the casinos, or at the cat houses. Football City, formerly St. Louis, was now the continent's gambling mecca. It got its name from the fact that just after World War III, an enterprising Texan named Louis St. Louis had an enormous 500,000-seat stadium built and instituted a 24-hour-a-day, nearly 365-day-a-year football match to be played between two 500-member free-substituting teams. Bets could be made on any increment of the game, from the quarters up to the entire year's match, and the resulting revenues proved incredible. Trouble was, many of the criminal elements around the continent all of them Soviet-backed, became envious of the good thing St. Louis had going. 
Thus, Football City had already been the scene of several full-scale battles and one authentic war, all in its short four-year history. But now, with the United Americans in control, however tenuous, of both the eastern and western portions of the continent, things were beginning to return to normal in Football City. The saint wiped his brow with authentic relief. As far as I know, the 727 crew didn't get any warnings over the radio from the attackers. These guys weren't your usual air thieves. They wanted something else, Hunter said. Such as? Maybe to send a message, Hunter shrugged. Though just what message that may be, I don't know. Hugo lit his pipe and changed the subject. Can I ask just what it is you're down here for? Hunter nodded. It's not really top secret or anything. I know Jones called and told you I'd be coming. He did. But that's all he told me. Hunter ran his fingers through his long, dark blonde hair. Jonesy just wants me to talk to an old pal of his down here, he said cautiously. Bourbon Street was absolutely mobbed when Hunter arrived downtown. It was still early, only about 9 p.m., yet the famous street was crowded with all kinds of people, soldiers, merchants, hookers, and assorted shady characters. The vast majority of them were carrying some kind of weapon, so Hunter didn't look out of place at all, wearing his brown camouflage flight suit, his helmet bouncing from his belt, his well-worn M-16 slung over his shoulder. His mission here was much more serious than he had let on to the saint. Hunter walked halfway down Bourbon, then took a ride onto Orleans Avenue. The wingman made his way through the crowd until he finally reached his destination, a place called 33 Thunder Alley. Alley was a good word for it. Two blocks down off Orleans Avenue, it was so narrow it seemed a motorbike would have had a hard time navigating its way through, never mind an auto or a truck. He walked down the alley until he reached a battered red door that had 33 carved into its frame, courtesy of a stiletto jackknife, no doubt. He opened this door to find a cramped hallway and another, even more garishly painted crimson door. There was no bell or buzzer, so he rapped on the door three times. Who the hell is there? He heard a gruff voice shout from the other side. At the same time, he also detected the unmistakable click of a round being loaded into a rifle chamber. I'm Major Hawk Hunter of the United American Air Force, Hunter yelled out, seeing no reason to mince words. I'm a friend of Dave Jones, and I'm looking for a guy named Captain Pegg. All the while, Hunter was silently slipping his M-16 off his shoulder and into firing position. The door swung open before he finished the sentence. Suddenly, he was staring down the barrel of no less than a German-made Heckler & Koch G3 SG-1 sniping rifle. Behind the rifle was a typically grizzled old-timer, complete with worn-out boat captain's cap and corncob pipe. Hunter slowly lowered his rifle. Are you Captain Pegg? I am, the man said defiantly, not moving his rifle an iota. Well, I'm a friend of Dave Jones, and I hear he's a friend of yours. He said you'd be expecting me. The old man lowered his gun only a notch. You're this wingman guy? The one that flies that souped-up F-16? Cripes, from what I heard about you, I expected you'd have sprouted a pair of wings. Hunter had to smile. With his battered cap, pipe, unshaved face, and heavily muscled forearms, the old guy was right out of a Popeye cartoon. The man lowered his powerful rifle and managed a gap-toothed smile. Okay, you look like a flyboy. Come on in. 
Hunter stepped inside the small flat, and it, too, looked as authentic as Captain Pegg. It was a clutter of sea paintings and photos, fishing lines, hats, parts of lobster traps and shrimp kettles, plus a couple dozen empty liquor boxes. How is my old friend David, Pegg said, dropping into a large overstuffed chair. I haven't seen him since the big war started. We grew up in the same neighborhood, you know. He, his twin brother Seth, and me. They went into airplanes, and I took to the sea. The general as well. Of course, he's up to his ears in work, trying to coordinate repair of all the war damage, as well as getting the reconstruction government running smoothly. Did David tell you why I contacted him after all these years? Peg asked Hunter. The pilot shook his head. No, not really. Just that you had some very critical information on the canal. Not just information, the old man said, his face creasing with worry. A dire warning, my boy. There's trouble brewing down there. It will make your latest brawl with the circle look like a finger fight. Tell me about it. Hunter drew up a wooden chair and sat down. Peg lit his pipe, and through a swirl of smoke began his strange story. Earlier that year, Peg had been hired to pilot a medium-sized coastal freighter out of New Orleans down to Buenos Aires to pick up a shipment and deliver it to Lima, Peru. The lockstep military government of Buenos Aires promised a fortune, in gold no less, for Peg if he agreed to make the voyage. Peg collected a third of his payment in advance and set out, his crew supplemented by a half-dozen Argentinian marines, none of whom could speak English. The tumultuous journey took over a week, during which the freighter was battered by hurricane-like winds and twenty-five-foot waves. They made it to the southwesternmost islands at the tip of Chile, where they docked and recovered for two days. Then they set out...